Okay, if everybody's ready to return to your seats, I think we're ready to start uh, our next session. Uh, and so this session is going to be a panel discussion on the patient perspective on drug delivery needs, both present and future, um, and uh, I think provide some case studies uh, to illustrate uh, uh, what this can look like. And so uh, I want to introduce uh, Sudeshna Dutta Rave, uh, who's Senior Engineer in Advanced Device Technology and Innovation at Amgen, who, along with Valerie, uh, is going to uh, moderate the session. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Um, so among uh, uh, the various buzzwords that, uh, uh, that's going around the healthcare industry, I think one of the most uh, um, significant ones is, the pa is patient centricity itself. Um, it's, it's one of those buzzwords that's creating paradigm shift in the healthcare industry. And um, uh, it's, it marks the evolution of healthcare pharma into uh, a patient-centered stage, where patient voice and experience uh, can be incorporating can be incorporated in developing combination products by itself. So, uh, without uh, further ado, um, I'll just introduce the topic or the objective of this panel discussion: would be uh, patient perspectives on drug delivery needs, both present and future. And um, this is one of the first times we're doing a panel discussion with patients itself. So kudos to Valerie and her team for organizing this. Um, so uh, I know uh, by introduction it's been already done, so I'll just probably hand it over to Valerie. Valerie is one of the uh, executive directors for Conference Forum. And uh, she's worked in the industry for the last 20 years uh, with industry professions from healthcare, biotech, um, and uh, she's um, propagated knowledge sharing within industry folks. So um, she'll not only be a co-moderator on this discussion, but she'll also be a participant from a caregiver perspective. So without further ado, I'd hand it over to Valerie to uh, share her words. Thanks, Sudeshna. Can everyone hear me okay? How's this mic working? Um, <clears throat> so it's a pleasure to be here because um, to be a co-moderator of our very first um, all-patient uh, panel, and um, I will also represent the patient perspective, and I'll get into my story as we uh, move along uh, with our panel discussion. But it is a, a real pleasure to get the patient perspective. Um, so we're not going to name names. It's not about a particular brand or, or a particular device name. We want to talk about um, uh, what, what is the experience with drug delivery technologies, and what insight can we provide you on how we can um, improve them. So with that, I am Valerie Bowling. I'm one of the co-directors of the Drug Delivery West program. I also co-direct our partnership opportunities in drug delivery event. I've been involved with the industry for over 20 years, and it's a real pleasure to be here. So what we're going to do with our round one of questions is we're going to have each of our panelists uh, introduce themselves and to talk about the, a little bit about the disease that they manage, and then we'll get into the experiences of uh, the technologies that they use to manage their diseases. So um, Cynthia, who's to my left, would you like to start? I'm Cynthia Goldstein. I'm from Los Angeles. I am 69 years old. I am a type 1 diabetic, diagnosed at age 50, so keep that in mind because that means any of you could get type 1 diabetes at any age now or in your future. I have been a journalism professor. I have been a newspaper editor. I'm a communications consultant now, and I'm an administrator at the VA in Los Angeles in a an H. pylori lab, a gastroenterological lab. Um, 
I have five autoimmune diseases. Type 1 diabetes is the one that takes up most of my attention of the five, and that's the one that I'm going to be focusing on today. Um, it took four endocrinologists to recognize that I was a type 1 diabetic, and if any of you are physicians, and I know some of you are, keep that in mind. I shouldn't have needed four, four endocrinologists and 10 months to get to my diagnosis. Um, that's my background. All right. Thank you, Cynthia. Mm -hmm. Lily? Hi, everyone. Oh, is this on? Can you? Yeah. Oh, OK. Hi, everyone. I'm Lily Stairs. I am a patient advocate and the head of patient advocacy at Clara Health. So I've dedicated both my personal and professional life to patient advocacy. At Clara, we're working to connect patients to clinical trials and support them throughout the process. I am currently living with both Crohn's disease and psoriatic arthritis. I was diagnosed at age 19 and uh, both had had a pretty severe onset. I've been through a couple of different biologics to find one that works for me. I've been fortunate enough to have found one and uh, been in medically controlled remission for about the past four years. Just to give you perspective on the severity of my diseases, my arthritis was total body, so to the point that I couldn't move, and the Crohn's disease left bleeding ulcers in my small intestine. And so uh, I've been very fortunate to be doing so well and, and to be able to be here on this panel today, and I'm looking forward to chatting with all of you about my experiences with drug delivery. Thank you. Michaela? Hi, I'm Michaela. Um, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I went to Xavier University and studied chemistry and economics and am now uh, just finished my Master of Science at Notre Dame in engineering science and technology entrepreneurship. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, so I've been dealing with um, my disease now for 10 years. Uh, I used to be a competitive swimmer and I was getting kind of to the elite level, um, but then was really slowed down my, by my disease. Um, it got pretty severe at one point. Um, I'm still on biologics every week, um, but I was able to kind of get it under control and swim at the D1 level um, in college. So um, I feel very fortunate to be here and hopefully to advocate for patients like myself. Thanks, Michaela. Um, so now we can just go around with another um, uh, question regarding your experience, uh, truly just describing your experience with your drug delivery devices itself. So I'll start with you, Cynthia. Okay. So for type 1 diabetes, I use five different devices, and I'll just tell you briefly what they are. First of all, it's blood testing by doing finger sticks, which can be several times a day or less, and I'll tell you why less as we go along. Um, then there are syringes for insulin, and for me, that's a backup device right now because of the advances in technology. And then there's the insulin pump, which is one of the great wonders of the world. I'm on my third insulin pump as they have improved the, the technology for it. I've moved up, too. And um, then the fourth one is inhaled insulin, which I consider to be fabulous, fabulous invention. And then finally, continuous glucose monitor, which is a miracle because it allows me to know that I will wake up in the morning because if my blood sugar drops too low, the continuous glucose monitor will, in my case, just vibrate. Some people need the whole beeping, complicated system, but for me, just vibrate and wake me 
and I can eat something or whatever I need to do. So my experience hinges on dealing with all five of those devices. All right, Lily. Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, I've been on a couple of different biologics, and I'd like to actually take a moment to thank everybody in this room for all of the work that you're doing on uh, to develop these medicines, because I, again, I wouldn't be sitting here, and I don't think any of us would be sitting here if it weren't for the medicines that you've you've developed in whatever capacity that you're working on them. So thank you. Uh, I've ha I've had a couple of the different types of injections. So I've had like the EpiPen-like injectable, uh, and then I've had. Uh, syringe injection, and so those are primarily the two different types that I've dealt with up until this point. All right. Thanks, Lily. Michaela? Um, I'm similar to Lily in that uh, I have used uh, the auto-injector pen for some of my biologics. I am now using the pre-filled syringe for my biologics, um, but I've also used um, syringes that uh, don't come filled, so you kind of have to do that yourself. All right, so thank you. Thanks again for sharing your experiences. Um, I'd like to know a little more about the device, uh, the drug delivery device itself, like what has worked well, what could work, what could be better about these devices. So Cynthia, starting with you, if you can share your experience. Okay, so finger sticks. Well, you guys have worked out ways so that they're practically painless now, and I appreciate that, but the calluses, not so good. You need something that, I don't know what, but I, I hate having these calluses all the time. And you need to figure out a way to get beyond that. Um, the the um, monitor that the finger sticks results go into, they have, that's advanced a lot. Now I can, get, I can look at patterns of my blood sugar. Um, I can see... It even lets me know when the patterns are not good and I should pay more attention to, to my blood sugar. So that's really advanced well, and you can keep going doing more with that. Um, for syringes, um, I imagine that it's, the painlessness is pretty good, but we could do with um, needles that don't have to either be broken off to make them safe to toss or they have to go into a, um, a, say, a sharps disposal container. It would be better to have something that I can do so that I can just toss the used needles and not have to worry about anybody else endangering themselves. Um, the insulin pump. Um, okay, so it attaches to me, then there's tubing, then there's the receiver, and the, the pump itself, and it's bulky. It's not anywhere near as bulky as it was, but it's bulky, and I would love to have you make it smaller. I would love to have you make it lighter weight. And for women and, and girls especially, we're not wearing pants, so we don't have all the time, so we don't have deep pockets. I can't tell you the number of times these various devices have fallen out of my much shallower pockets because women's pants aren't made for this. Um, or I've got some cute little things I can clip onto my waist or whatever for, for, for the devices, but that's a pain in the ass too. So we need to figure out, you need to figure out a way to make it more convenient for me to carry my devices around and use them. 
And I also want my pumps to be able to go through airport security. I don't think that's a lot to ask for. Maybe it is a lot to ask for, but we really need that. Need to be able to go through airport security and MRIs. None of this stuff can go through MRIs, so somehow we've got to figure that out. Um, my inhaled insulin, um, it's amazing because my blood sugars say it's been terrible for the whole day or even maybe a couple days, up in near 300s or something, and I want it around 100. And I'm giving myself boluses of insulin. It's not making any difference, which happens sometimes. So I do one hit, one hit with my inhaled insulin, and with an hour, my blood sugar is normal, perfectly normal. It's, it's a miracle. But makes me cough sometimes, and for some people it makes them cough so much they can't use it at all. And it just, it's just keep working on that. I'm afraid that the company is, it hasn't gone out of business, but I, I think it hasn't gotten much support at all from the FDA, from um, insurance companies, from Medicare. So inhaled insulin is a wonderful thing, and I hope you can figure a way, a way to keep that going. And finally, continuous glucose monitor, which also, although it's not attached with tubing, it, there is a big thing that is attached to me that communicates with the receiver. And it's really pretty accurate most of the time. I can just hold it up and say, oh, that's what my blood sugar is. And here's where it's going a little bit down, or here's where it's going a little bit up, or shooting up, or shooting down. And it's great. Um, but it's not so great at the low end and at the high end, which actually are the two most important parts of the device. It can be off by quite a bit. And um, it's, it's still in the developing stages in terms of working with the FB, FDA and Medicare and whatnot. It was just recently approved by Medicare. Um, there was this whole thing about how it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary device, so they weren't going to approve it. And then they had said the same thing about insulin pumps, and they finally decided that it was necessary. And now they have decided that uh, continuous glucose monitors are necessary too. So, um, the, but, but getting reimbursed for it is a whole nother ball game because I have to prove every month that I'm a type 1 diabetic. Every month, even though I've been a type 1 di diabetic for 19 years, in order for Medicare to cover it, which is what the FDA requires. So, actually, Cynthia, I'd love to talk about that. Um, we'll, we'll do that we're, later. We're going to set, that's we're gonna set, yeah, yeah, we're gonna set that. aside that because yeah. that is a big issue, I think, for okay. everybody here. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank that's you, okay. Cynthia. Thank you, Cynthia. Okay. Sure. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, I'm also, I also did infusions. Completely forgot about that. It was a couple years ago. Uh, so, and I, I want to start by saying, right now, my current medication, that's the this pre-filled syringe, I actually only have to take every two months, which is incredible. And so I will say, not having to do a weekly injection or even every six weeks, having that every two months is amazing. Uh, it's very little. It's only every two months. That's awesome. It's only a couple times a year. Uh, infusions, what I didn't love about that was that I often, it, it ended up taking pretty much, I was out out for the day. It was, I would go in, you'd have to be in the 
hospital, you'd get the infusion, they'd give you the Benadryl, so you fall asleep, you're sleepy the rest of the day, and the infusion takes about two hours on its own. So I didn't love that. Uh, The other thing I'll say is auto-injector. One major issue that I had was that the medicine really stung. And so even though I didn't see the needle, which I loved that I didn't see the needle, I would go to give myself the injection, but I was always nervous to give myself the injection because I knew that the medicine was really going to sting. And so there was one time, or a couple times actually, where I gave myself the auto-injector, but I didn't press hard enough because I was so nervous, and I watched the medicine pool on my leg instead of going into my body, and we all know how much these biologics cost, and so I'm just sitting there looking at this medicine that I desperately need, and I'm not going to be able to get another one because this isn't just a, a, an Advil that you can swap out and take another one. This is, a, this is not something that your insurance is going to cover. So maybe something that actually numbs. I would sometimes put an ice pack on my skin to, to numb it, but it, it didn't really do the trick. If there's some sort of potentially numbing gel or medication that could go in before, if you know you're going to have a, a type of medicine that's going to sting, because I know not all of them do, it just depends on the, the chemical makeup of it, but if that's going to happen, you know, is there a way to have like a cooling tip when the, when, before the needle goes in, or is it that there's a numbing medicine that releases first? So just something to think about when you have a medicine that, especially with, I mean, that, and that's me when I'm 19 years old, think about for a pediatric patient. Uh, and so the other thing I'll say about my injection that I have right now, which is the pre-filled syringe, even though that's the syringe and I have a terrible fear of needles, which I've had to get over, it doesn't sting. And so I have no problem giving myself the, the in- injection. I actually prefer it to the, to the auto injector. So the, the, that's just sort of been my experience thus far with some of these medications. Thanks again, Lily. Michaela? Um, I had a very similar experience to Lily in terms of the auto-injector. I, as well, um, I like being in control, and so the auto-injector did not um, allow for me to be in control, and it often went too fast, in my opinion, where with my pre-filled syringe, which is why I'm on it right now, um, I can kind of control the speed of the delivery of that, so I can slow it down so that it doesn't burn and it's a comfortable pace for myself. Um, And then it also allows, you know, so I know that the needle is in and will stay in, um, which has helped, but... It is a pain to have to take the um, biologic every week, especially if you travel a lot, like figuring out the logistics of keeping it cold or keeping it safe or packing enough for the trip. Uh, Trip's duration has been difficult. And then um, specifically when I was first diagnosed, I would say that one of the biggest issues for me was just learning the proper technique of the injection. Um, I know there are like millions of like, long, scary packets online or the doctor gives to you, but when you're first diagnosed and you're overwhelmed with just the whole fact that your life is going to change drastically, um, the last thing on your mind is the technique until, you know, the day of when, oh my gosh, like this is my first time doing it. I don't know what I'm doing at all. I kind of practice once with a nurse, but am I doing this injection right? Because if I'm not, then I'm wasting $2,000. I'm not getting better. And, you know, none of my issues are really solved. Michaela, do you want to talk about your startup as well? I think that'll be an interesting uh, piece to it as well, like how she worked towards uh, coming up with an unmet, coming up with an idea to solve this unmet need. Right. So um, during my master's program at Notre Dame, um, it was kind of just started as you know, a class project where I was like, oh, let's fix something that matters. And so my roommates and I, who are also in the program, decided 
let's do something surrounding your injections that you kind of still struggle with every week, even though you've been on them for 10 years. And so we've been doing kind of rough prototypes to help people who are on these subcutaneous injections that aren't the auto-injectors, but are the ones, you know, that are pre-filled and you have to do it at 45 degrees. So um, each week I've been taking our little... um, prototype. It's kind of butterfly-shaped. It stabilizes the angle at 45 degrees, and it also has um, protrusions on the bottom that saturate the nerve so that you don't feel the injection go in as much. And I've, I've been using that, um, and it's been helping quite a bit. And so that's kind of, we're still in like very much the development stage, but I've noticed that that has kind of helped me, and I would hope that would help other people in the future. Thanks, Michaela. Um, thank you. So, so um, I'm a patient advocate of a, of a child. Um, uh, one of my children, when they were seven, um, didn't grow for a year. And then from eight to nine, um, she grew a half an inch. So we made the decision to put her on growth hormone. And um, so, you know, you can imagine you're nine years old and um, you're a head smaller than all the other kids, so you're already feeling a little odd and, you know, what's wrong with me and why can't I be like everybody else? And, um, and suddenly you have to take this injection every night. And when we first got the uh, first device, it was like a little, looked like a little stamp, and you never saw the needle, and it was digital, and it made noise and put you know, a picture and distracted the child, and they never saw the needle. And that was okay. It was okay. But what happened was um, the insurance company that we were on at the time the relationship they had with the specialty pharma, they broke up and we got a new specialty pharma and they said, well, we don't actually reimburse for that type of uh, delivery. You're going to have to use um, an injectable. Okay. So it was, you know, information comes and um, not such great information. Um, And this is what I want to bring up next as a topic. It's kind of like all the stuff that goes around it. Um, and, and this is not sort of insurmountable stuff. And I don't know how much you communicate with the other departments, whether it be medical affairs or packaging. But um, so we went through several different um, devices and companies that manufacture the devices based on the relationships with um, our insurance company and their specialty pharmacy. Um, and so it's such a big deal, right? It's not about the patient 100%. It's about satisfying, you know, who's going to reimburse this and uh, what are they willing to reimburse? And Quite often, the patient is not really, you know, top of mind, or it feels that way when you're um, a parent um, of a child who's really anxious and is not very happy about having to change these devices. So anyhow, um, so um, anyway, but we ended up on a device, and I won't mention the company because that's not what we're here to talk about, but it was very small, had a tiny little micro needle. Um, It was simple. It was, you know, like an EpiPen. It was very simple. Um, And it was two hours every single night, dealing with the anxiety of my child. Um, we did have a little numbing cream, um, and uh, I don't know if it really worked or not, but it, you know, it distracted her and made her feel like it would work. Um, and it was just such a routine every single night. It went on and on and on. Uh, but anyway, but this, um, the, the device we ended up with in the very end that we stayed on for the longest was pretty simple. Um, but what I loved about the company was that the video that we got spoke appropriately to my child. It didn't scare my child, didn't make my child feel like there was something wrong with them, but more that they're part of a community, that they're not alone, Um, that the health literacy was really appropriate, Um, that the packaging that we got was so simple, and it was just like lovely colors. It was just very 
beautifully designed, um, that my child received um, a cold pack so she could bring it on traveling and to camp, uh, a little knapsack so that all of the equipment can go in there. And you felt, if anything, kind of cool. This is really nice. So it's just really the literacy and the, the packaging that made it so nice. Um, and uh, we got through it, and I'm just very grateful that, um, you know, somebody had figured out a whole system, um, that there was somebody you can talk to. Um, and there was also a website uh, uh, for children. Um, again, it was, instead of feeling like you were different or you were odd, you were part of a community. And uh, it really made the difference for us. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that with each of you. Um, I kind of call it the service elements and what made the difference for you. Or, you know, was there something kind of cumbersome that, you know, could have been better? Um, so, Michaela, do you mind if we start with you? or? Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing for me, particularly, that comes to mind is actually um, goes along with the packaging and how it's sent to your house or delivered to your house or however you have to pick it up through your specialty pharmacy. In my case, um, it's been delivered you know, every month to my house. But what um, bothers me the most is just the big cumbersome packaging it comes in and the big styrofoam um, you know, cooler because I know I understand it has to be kept cool, so I understand the safety precautions with that. However, I feel really guilty every month when I am throwing away a huge box of styrofoam, plastic, uh, you know, little cooling packets. So if there was a way that we could, you know, send those back to be reused or even just have a more permanent container to send back and forth so that we're having less of an impact on the environment, uh, I would really, you know, appreciate that, and I, I think the earth would too. Um, but um, another thing for the service would just be more on the education side. I understand that there are sometimes videos or um, packets, but unless it's really kind of made easy when you're doing it, uh, the education won't matter as much. Because, yeah, I can read it as many times as I want, but when I get into the moment and I'm nervous and anxious, like those things kind of go, go out my head, so... And I'll just piggyback off of that. Uh, in terms of the, the delivery process, I've actually, my new specialty pharmacy has started at least asking me, oh, do you need a sharps container this time? So I'm not getting a new sharps container every single time for my one little in injection, uh, which has been great. And I, so this has been a major issue for me, just the, the whole delivery piece of the, the medication. I actually have a post on my blog called My Top 10 Specialty Drug Nightmares. But I think the worst one was actually when I, went to go pick up my injection and found out it had been handed to another patient, uh, which at that time was really particularly bad because I was on a higher dose than most patients because of the uh, Crohn's disease. And so that patient, if, if they had taken that injection, probably got the wrong, uh, wrong dosage. So it's something to be aware of that these things are happening. That was a $20,000 medication that was handed to another patient. Uh, so I would say... One of the big things uh, that could be helpful was when I was trying to get trained on my injection, there was no uh, sample injection for me to try. Like, I, w I really wanted something that was like, if you know, maybe it had a saline solution instead of the actual medication so that I could have tested it. Because when you're using the real medication, it's really stressful because it's obviously a very expensive medication. You don't want to lose it. And so if I had something that I could practice on, that would have been amazing. And I think a couple of companies do that, but I'm not so sure. So something to think about is if you can make a couple of syringes that maybe have a saline solution in it so that you can practice and get comfortable, that would be awesome. And I would say around uh, delivery, just making sure that it's, 
as easy on the patient as it can be. You know, it's, it's stressful to have these things delivered and making sure that it gets there on time. And so uh, my, my new specialty pharmacy has done a wonderful job with that. They call me. They, they double-check to make sure I have everything I need. And so I, that really that helps a lot. Yeah, uh, I think, Lou, you bring up a fair point. I can demo kits is one of the things we, as pharma companies, do work on so that it becomes easier to train patients as well as HCPs administering the drug. So I think uh, that's a fair point. Because if that drug doesn't get in the body... Uh, it ends up on your leg, and it's two thousand dollars. Like you, you just, it's yeah. it's devastating, and it's happened to all of us. Um, so yeah, really being able to have something to practice with is, is a great, great point. Um, Cynthia, any thoughts around the topic of um, I'm calling it service? You yeah. know, the things that go around the drug delivery. Yes. Well, so for finger sticks and syringes and those things, it's a matter of persuading insurance companies and Medicare that I deserve to have X number of test strips and X number of bottles of insulin because that is often, those things are often limited. And it, it's a battle every month to persuade them. Sometimes my doc, and not sometimes, my doctor, my endocrinologist has to write letters of medical necessity so that I can get as much of everything as she wants me to have. And what if it takes them longer to decide to approve it? And meanwhile, I'm running low. And so there's this whole negotiation process between insurance companies, Medicare, and then the physician, I guess. And then that involves the pharmacy because the pharmacy has to actually provide me with the stuff. And I'm calling them saying, well, has it arrived yet? Has it arrived yet? And they say, no, we haven't heard anything. I mean, it's just not good. And I don't know if any of you are involved in any of that stuff, but it would be great. But when we get to the more complicated devices like the insulin pump and the continuous glucose monitoring, there is wonderful training, one-on-one training. I got, there's a, I had people who came to me and spent as much time as I needed teaching me how to use everything and came back if I needed more help and were available 24 seven to help me whenever I needed it. And even now that I've got these devices and I'm really good with them, anytime anything goes wrong, I can call up my continuous glucose monitor company 24-7. I can call up my pump company 24-7 and say, walk me through this. Here's what happened. Here's what I see. What should I do? And if anything is wrong with any piece of equipment I have, they FedEx me. I hope I can say FedEx. Yes. Um, <laughs> they FedEx me the FedEx brand, <laughs> they br- a brand new whatever, and I really get it the next day. Um, so they're very, very good at that. And um, we do have... Let's see what are service issues. Um, I was going to say, Cynthia, that um, this is why I thought it was so important to have a patient panel because, um, you know, we're all battling insurance companies. um, But it's, it's, you know, if if we can work closer with patients, that industry and patients come together to present, you know, as a united force (laughs) to the reimbursers, it's going to be stronger. I, I, it, you shouldn't have to go through that. It shouldn't have to be a fight every time. That's true. Um, I mean, you're doing the science. You're developing the technology, you, you, you know, and you're doing a great job. And, and I, I can see there's just been nothing but improvements, and it just continues. Um, and then it becomes a nightmare when you're dealing with the insurance company. And, it, it, and so what can we do um, to 
be more united and to um, create a system whereby um, it's, too, it's a collective voice between industry and patients. Let me say one more thing. Mm. Okay, on the inhaled insulin, I read about it and wanted to try it before it was really everywhere. And I had to persuade my endocrinologist, Medicare, and my pharmacy to, to let me do this. There was nothing, it was no, nobody said to me, certainly not the company making the, the drug, here, let us help you use our drug. We want you to, it works, we know, we've tested it. None of that. And I had to get lung studies done in order to be allowed to use the drug. And then I had to persuade Medicare to cover it. And then I had to make sure that the, the manufacturer made, what, I had to find out what the manufacturer was making, how were they, do, what was the drug delivery system, and then I had to see if my pharmacy carried, or which of the options that the drug manufacturer made, did my pharmacy carry, and then talk to my endocrinologist and figure out, well, which of these would be good for me? It doesn't seem like this is practical, I need this much of this, whatever and on and on and on, months and months, just to be able to use this supposedly wonderful drug that apparently had a lot of problems like this and may not even be available anymore, I don't know. But anyway, okay. But you eventually got there. I got there, but I don't know how, if I ever need more, I don't know if I'll ever you be able it. to get anyone more. Anyone needs anyone to advocate, I think this is the lady, right? <laughs> but I think it's, uh, it's great points that our um, patients brought up uh, in this uh, discussion. I think all the barriers to access from the patient perspective, I think uh, as a pharma company or um, to enable, help enable access to medication would be important. And also for devices, I think use of devices, if we can enable a support system or an ecosystem around it to help reduce the anxiety about using these devices as well as help um, provide support when you know when you run into errors or issues using this device would be something as a pharma company we could do. Um, so um, as a segue to our next section, we would open, we try to open out uh, questions from the audience. We would uh, request not mentioning any particular brands or devices around it, but if you could, uh, um, any questions from the audience, uh, this would be the time. Kate's got the mic. She's coming. She's coming. Uh, this question is for Cynthia. I, you mentioned several devices. Did you have you had to have glucagon as well as one of your? Interesting. Movies? I'm supposed to have glucagon with me all the time. I've never used it, and I, I think I bought the first one when I was supposed to, the first injection of it when I was supposed to, but I never have used it because I've never had such low blood sugar that I ever needed to. But I understand, from what I know, it's a little bit complicated right now, or they're trying to make it more user-friendly. It, it requires mixing two things together and then putting it into the syringe, and, then, and it's not something I can give myself because I'm too out of it at that point. That's the whole point of glucagon. So somebody has to do it for me, and there has to be somebody with me at the exact moment when I need it, someone who already knows how to do it, and on and on. So it needs more work, but fortunately, I've never had to use it. Thank you. 
I have a question right here. Sorry. So you mentioned that uh, your glucometer, it's not good in lower and higher uh, it, end of um, concentration my, measurement. My continuous glucose monitor. Your, your continuous glucose. And what's your point of comparison? Like, how do you know? If how do you know it's not doing so well? Yeah. Well, if I see something really radical there, like either very low or very high, I immediately do a finger stick to test my blood. And it'll say, oh, your blood's 87. And the continuous glucose monitor says, oh, your blood sugar's 56. And I feel fine, which is a di- I shouldn't feel fine if my blood sugar's 56. So I know something's off. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing your insights, on, uh, especially from the patient point of view. So I, I'm working for Jensen, has been working on the insulin pump and RE device and the clone, <laughs> all the, all the yeah, drug <laughs> delivery covered, and the cover all, yeah, uh, covered all our bases. most of uh, the indications you mentioned. So during the development, we do a lot of usability and human factor study. I just wonder, like, have you ever involved this one? And, uh, because we highly rely on the usability human factor study to improve the device and get a comment either to device packaging IFU. So how do you value this stuff or do you have any other suggestions for we, how can we get really the insights or input in the early development in the device? Uh, thank you. Well, I, I participate in every clinical trial I can. I, am hap- I call companies and I say, here's what's wrong with what I'm using of yours, and here's what you should do to improve it. And every once in a while, there's a company wise enough to call patients and ask those questions. But whether they do or not, I call them and talk to them about it. And I'm happy to do that for anybody, and I'm bet you guys are too. Yeah, I, I think that we're starting to see a lot of companies actually bringing patients in in the early phases and I recommend even from the clinical des- clinical trial design phase to bring patients in and I will hear companies that say well it's an issue with compliance there are a ton of companies out there who are bringing patients in from the beginning to help with clinical trial design, to help with the design of the things that you're doing. So I encourage you, if you are getting pushback from your compliance department, to keep pushing for it and find other companies who are doing who are doing it and working with patients because that's where you're going to see the best results. It needs to be from the very beginning. You can't just be going to patients when you're in phase three or, or um, you know, whatever if it's a device, uh, whatever the the parallel is for devices uh, because it's too late. It's too late at that point. So you need to really be bringing patients in from the beginning. And I, and I applaud all of you who are already doing that and who are interested in, in trying to bring patients in. Any other questions? I would say even, even before clinical trials, I'll help you when you're thinking about the drug or the device. I'll say to you, well, if you do that, here's how I'm going to respond. Or you're looking at different options or whatever, and, I'll, and I can say to you, I like this better because, or I hate this because, or whatever. You know, don't, why wait? You know, bring me in at the beginning, or somebody like me. True. I, I think I totally agree with you, Cynthia, and all the rest of the panelists, that as a patient, the patient voice needs to be integrated into the device development itself, not just um, the drug, but also the devices, just to integrate the user needs into uh, uh, realistic requirements to the devices. I think we all do that with user preference studies and usability studies, but if we can actively engage the patients a lot more, 
than just uh, the user requirements at every stage of device development. I think that'll be critical. So I know we're running out of time. We just have 30 more seconds. So I would say, um, I'd ask the panelists to just say one thing that you would like the audience to take back. What would that be, starting with you, Michaela? Um, I think it's kind of been summed up for me. It's just that um, knowing that the patient is the end user, so you can come up with all these great ideas or things you think will work, but if they're not willing to use it, it's not going to help the patients and the outcomes are not going to be improved. That's exactly my takeaway, and I'll, I'll add to that. A, a great way to do that is to, because it's easy to get really lost in all of the work that you're doing each and every, and get into the nitty-gritty and sort of forget about the end user, I think a great way to remember the patient is to have a collage or pictures of, of your end users who are, who are using and, and have their stories on the walls of your companies and uh, in your workspace so that you can always be reminded that this is who you're building something for. And I would just say... Put patients on your boards of directors. I look at your boards of directors lists all the time, and I never see patients. I see all these CEOs of related businesses that, that are valuable to you for some purposes, but I never see patient anywhere there. So try that. I guess as, the, as a representative of the, of the pediatric voice, I would say that in communicating to pediatrics, it's different than communicating to the parent and to make sure that that's, they're both included um, so not, as to not scare the child. That would be my, my, my takeaway. And to know that there's all kinds of other things around the drug delivery technology that's so important to the end user. Um, and you, you mentioned packaging um, and I'm, health literacy, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. And, um, and how um, you're making the... The, the end user feel included or excluded. So, um, so with that, um, we want to thank our, our, our first patient panel, um, and um, you know, just a pleasure to have each of you. If we can have a round of applause for our patients. And Sudeshna, thank you so much, and um, we'll, we'll continue the program. Thank you. <laughs>